Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to The Power Test, the political podcast that asks if it really is all over for the Tories, whether Labour are on track to win and what needs to happen to change Britain for the better. I'm Sam Friedman. And I'm Aisha Hazarika. Today we turn to the housing crisis, a crisis with several different fronts. The UK simply doesn't have enough houses. The ones we do have are often unaffordable and renters face spiralling costs and sometimes terrible living conditions. How did it all come to this and what can be be done to fix it. Later we'll be joined by housing activist Kweju Twenabara, former planning minister under the Conservative government Nick Bowles and the vice chair of the Labour housing group Rachel Blake to get their thoughts. So you've been up in Scotland this week Aisha. I have. I feel like you've been stalking me on social media. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have. It's really interesting because last week I sat in on a Scottish focus group and we discussed this last week. And um, in the last few days, I've just been up in Edinburgh at a big business event. And it was quite interesting getting their take on on where things are. I mean, Labour got themselves into a bit of hot water over um, some oil and gas announcements this week. And of course, in the northeast of Scotland, the oil and gas sector is still incredibly important. Like a lot of jobs depend on the oil and gas sector up there. Labour said that they weren't going to grant any new licences. Now, Keir Starmer then slightly rolled back from that and said, look, you know, we're balancing the need for a green economy, but we do want there to be what's known as this just transition but it was interesting sort of hearing from actual sort of a lot of oil and gas people there as well hearing their reaction to it and again they kind of need some more meat on the bones like they do want to know a bit more in terms of policy stuff. In terms of Scottish politics if you look at the polls at the moment it looks like Labour are maybe on track to win 15-20 seats in Scotland which would obviously be a huge improvement from the one that they have at the moment because of the difficulties the SNP have got into and we're actually going to have probably a by-election uh, quite soon, which Labour would hope to take off the SNP. Do you get the sense that the sort of SNP is in real trouble and Labour are fighting back for those Scottish seats? I think that the Labour Party is in a much better place than it was, but I think there is an anxiety that Labour might have soaked up as much soft SNP support as it is likely to, and the next chunk of SNP voters that it needs to get are quite die-hard independent supporters. And if Labour, which it is going to carry on because that's its policy, very much no deal with the SNP, no talk of any second referendum, how do you then get those other voters. And it is really critical because if Labour are able to win 15, 20 seats there even more, it makes it so much easier for them to get an overall majority. And speaking of polls, there's a big poll that's just come out just as we've been sitting down to record, Sam. What are your thoughts on that? This is a big uh, MRP poll, which is a very big poll where you get a big sample size and then you look at what's going on in different kinds of seats around the country. And they've got Labour winning 
470 seats, having a massive kind of majority, Blair-level majority. And the Tories only winning 120-odd seats, which would be their worst performance ever since the sort of formation of the Conservative Party. So you know, it looks very dramatic. And I think some sort of gives a lie to this sort of constant press narrative that they keep trying to create that the Tories are coming back into it is actually really close. It can get a lot closer, of course. Lots of things can go wrong for Labour, as we've discussed through the series. But right now, they are in landslide territory. But you talk to Tories and they're completely despondent. You know, they think they're definitely going to lose. There is an acceptance, I think, broadly, that Keir Starmer probably is going to be Prime Minister. But there's also uh, a deep anxiety and a real interest in terms of what happens in that first term of, of, of a new world. And there's many quite good young Conservatives standing to be selected now because there is a, a view from some Conservatives that if Labour have an absolutely terrible time in their first term, maybe the Conservatives can regroup and try and come back. Yeah, well, actually, if you're, if you're an ambitious politician, you, it's, it's a good time to go into Parliament when your party is at the lowest ebb. If you think about sort of Blair and Brown came in in 1983, Cameron came in in 2001. Osborne came in at yeah, that time Yeah, you don't as well, have yeah. a lot of competition uh, from your cohort because it's a small cohort by definition. So it's actually, if you want to lead your party, it's quite a good idea to go in uh, sort of now rather than Sam, waiting. Sam, when are you stand? Are... He's running. <laughs> He's running. I don't know for who. I don't know who I'd run for anymore. <laughs> You've got to go and save the Conservative Party. <laughs> I'm definitely not going to do that. <laughs> I don't think they want me. Um, but so on the issue of sort of like Labour preparing for, for government, now we've been quite critical. I've been certainly quite critical over the last few episodes in terms of the fact that they perhaps not being honest about the scale of our problems. But the issue we're talking about today, the housing crisis, they actually have been quite bold in some of the policy they've set out over the last few weeks, talking about building on the green belt, which has been sort of verboten for all parties for, for a long time, talking about, you know, upping the number of houses we try and build, being builders, not blockers. And Sam, this is a topic that we've had loads of interest in from our, our listeners. Let's just start with a sort of route one basic question, which I feel will allow you to unleash your inner nerd. Inner tiny nerd. Inner tiny Hulk nerd. <laughs> <laughs> okay, get ready. Ben Gray has asked us on Twitter, what do we actually mean by the housing crisis? which is a great question because there are lots of different elements to the housing crisis. Uh, we don't have enough houses, uh, which is to do with the fact that for a very long time now, 70-odd years, we've had uh, very restrictive planning laws in the UK, such as the Green Belt, which have restricted the growth of cities, various rules about density, which has prevented cities from growing upwards, even if they can't expand outwards. And it's less about the total number of houses in the country, although we probably don't have enough overall. It's more about where they are and the fact that the places people really want to live, places like Oxford and Cambridge, where there's huge demand for homes, aren't building very many because of these really tight planning restrictions and the fact that, in general, there's not much incentive for local areas to, to build. So number one problem is, is, is supply. And we've got Nick Bowles on, who used to be planning minister, who I think we, will give us a good sort of sense of how... Uh, Labour might think about that problem. But then you've got an affordability problem, which is linked to supply. If we built a lot more houses, they might get a bit cheaper. But there's far more elements to affordability than just the number of houses we have. The biggest reason why houses have got so much more expensive over the last 40 years, and they've quadrupled in, in value over the last 40 years, is because it's become a lot easier to borrow money. Interest rates have come down consistently over that period by a lot. Uh, banks have made it much easier to access credit, especially in the run-up to the financial crisis. It then became a little bit harder again. And that much easier borrowing has led to this big expansion in people buying houses, which after all are assets, and created this bulge in prices, which has made it harder for young people to get the deposit to get on the housing ladder. Whilst interest rates were still low, housing wasn't actually any more expensive than it used to be because your mortgage was much lower. Uh, the interest rate you were paying on your mortgage was much lower, but you did need to get that sort of bigger deposit, which made it harder for young people to get on the housing ladder. Now, of course, we've seen interest rates go up a lot because of inflation over the last year or two as the Bank of England try and tackle inflation. And that suddenly put a lot of people who got mortgages when interest rates are very low in a lot of financial trouble uh, because they've just suddenly gone up and, and monthly repayments have gone up so much. So that's the first part of the affordability problem and very difficult for, for governments to fix because they don't control interest rates, which were given to the Bank of England in 1997 by Labour. 
The other bit of the affordability problem is if you look at the sort of lower end of the housing market for people who don't have as much money, back in the 80s, the Conservatives had a policy called right to buy, which allowed people to buy social housing. At the point where they started that policy, about a third of people lived in social housing. But a lot of that stock got sold off to people who bought their social house and it wasn't replaced. And because it wasn't replaced, that meant the stock just diminished over time and about half the number of people now live in social housing as they did back then. That has pushed uh, a lot of people into private renting. So the number of people renting privately has gone up a lot. And a lot of people who have much less money as well have had to go into private renting. And uh, that pushed up the housing benefit bill. So housing benefit got a lot more expensive because that's the way we support people who rent privately. And then the government tried to stop that bill going up by freezing housing benefit, which means that people who are who are privately renting on lower incomes are in real, real trouble because their housing benefit has been frozen now for, for a couple of years through this inflationary period. So all over the place, whether you're talking about people with mortgages are seeing their interest rates go up, whether you're talking about young people who maybe have a decent income but don't have the deposit to buy, whether you're talking about people who should be in social housing but we don't have enough of it, private renting and dependent on housing benefit, which has been frozen, everywhere you've got these affordability problems. So it's a, a multiple crisis across a huge number of different areas. And that's why I think it's becoming one of the big electoral issues of the day. And of course, on top of that as well is the quality of the housing stock 10% of people in the UK live in housing defined as poor quality. We've had some really quite heartrending stories of children and, and older people having huge health problems as a result of damp flats. And of course, next week, it's the sixth anniversary of the Grenfell disaster and cladding is still a major issue for many renters and also people who have bought their properties. We're going to be speaking with Kwejo Twenebara, who is a housing campaigner. He's done some fantastic work shining a light on this. It's a really big, big problem. I mean, can anybody fix this quickly, Sam? Uh, well, there's lots of, you, all of those different problems have different fixes. You know, you've got to look at planning uh, and, and Labour have started to set out some really interesting policy on that. You've got to look at access to finance, things like uh, mortgage guarantees and Labour have said they, they're interested in looking at mortgage guarantees. The bit that no one's really talking about is this bit for people on lower income, this is social housing and housing benefit. And that's where it gets a bit more tricky for everyone because to solve that problem requires money. And the thing is, you can talk about planning regulations, they're contentious, but they don't have to spend much money on it. In fact, it would save a lot of people money. But when it comes to helping people with the cost of housing, that starts costing money. And we get back into the problems we talked about in our economy episode with the fact that Labour are very constrained. And Rachel Reeve said again this week, you're not allowed to make any unfunded spending promises. So parts of it, Labour, I think, are, are, are suggesting some good policies in other spaces, less so. But we all see what our guests have to say about all of that. Now, before we bring our guests in, shall we just do a quick canter through what the Conservative policy is at the moment and what the Labour... <laughs> the Conservative policy is completely incoherent on this issue. And it's really interesting because they're very split. Probably the biggest split now, Europe is sort of, well, it's not been resolved, but but on housing, there's this really big split in the party between people like Theresa Villiers, who've been campaigning against house building and saying sort of rules that this government introduced to sort of say local areas have to build a certain number of houses were wrong. They're sort of this sort of NIMBY side. And then you've got a kind of YIMBY side of younger Tories. A lot of the big Tory think tanks really want to build, build, build. And there's a sort of clash that Rishi Sunak's been caught in the middle of. And he's ended up siding effectively with Villiers. And they, they've cut the house building targets, taken them away, and, and, and building has massively dropped as a result, but it's causing real tension in the Tory party because there's a lot of unhappiness. And I mean, Labour has come up with some quite punchy uh, policy, as you say. They've been, they said that they really want to encourage house building by allowing local development authorities to buy up land at a fraction of its potential cost if they promise to build it. Uh, Sadiq Khan, I mean, he's obviously London mayor, he's not 
you know, he's not leader of the Labour Party yet. Maybe, maybe one day he wants one to day. have a Khan versus Burnham, the War of the Mayors, <laughs> coming to you soon. Um, he wants to go down the kind of freezing rents route. I mean, Labour, I think the front bench are not that, that no, happy about that. No, I think the front that. bench are definitely not keen on that. What do you now. think about the overall policy in terms of snapping up land at a fraction of its cost? I mean, do you think that will work? Do you think there'll be a lot of legal challenge to that? Well, I think, I think you can change the law to make it doable and actually... Conservatives have previously sort of thought about doing this as well. At the moment, if you buy land for farming land, you have to pay the price for what it would be worth if you were able, if you had planning permission. So essentially, what Labour is saying is you change the rules so you can buy it for its actual value without planning permission, and then get planning permission, and then you get a lot more value out of the land, which incentivizes local authorities to do it, which is a good idea, I think. Landowners might be unhappy, but they're a fairly small group of voters. So that's quite positive. The noise about them building on the green belt, I thought, was a really bold thing for them to say and potentially risky for them because the green belt is popular, partly because of its name. It's, it's one of those names where if you if you call it something different, the constriction belt around cities, people wouldn't like it. But green belt sounds nice. Sounds and lovely. Natural and yeah. na- national trust. That's probably the single thing that Starmer said that's most politically contentious, which is quite interesting. Well, joining us today to talk about the state of housing in the UK, we've got three brilliant guests. We have the social housing activist, Kwejo Twenabara. Hello, Kwejo. Hi, how are you? It's great to have you with us. Thank you. We have the former Conservative MP who was once uh, Minister for Planning, Nick Bowles. Hello, Nick. Hello there. And we have the current vice chair of the Labour Housing Group, who's also standing to be a Labour MP for the cities of London and Westminster, Rachel Blake. Hello, Rachel. Hello there. Now, Quajo, we're going to start with um, you. You've done a huge amount of work around the condition of social housing today. Just describe to us what is the reality of that and, and what made you active in this area? Um, I mean, for so many people in social housing, but not just social housing, private rented accommodation too, so many are living in disrepair and have done for years. And I think it's obviously a problem that's existed for generations. It just hasn't simply been addressed. Um, and the conditions I've been seeing people in have been described in a lot of cases as not even fit for animals to live in. I mean, me, myself, that's where I started, was living in poor social housing and there was issues like cockroaches, mice, damp mould, lights filled with water, kitchen units that were nearly 100 years old, a bathroom that we could barely use, um, poor security to the house. I've been stood in people's homes that have been flooded with raw sewage. I've had to take people to A&E because parts of ceilings have collapsed on top of them after they'd been complained and ignored. And it's the same sort of things I'm seeing, not just in London, but up and down the country too. Even people in Northern Ireland reaching out to me to ask for help. And who do you think is to blame for this? Is that too glib a question? Is it very complex? Is it historical? Who, who, what, who or what is at fault here? I mean, it's at multiple levels. I don't think there's uh, just one individual um, that you can point the blame at. I think it's failures at multiple levels. This is something that's been going on for generations. Multiple uh, governments have overseen these issues. And I know MPs, because I've spoken to MPs who have received thousands of complaints in regards to housing and the conditions people are living in. And not just over the last two years that I've been going into people's homes, but I've spoken to tenants that have suffered in some cases for 27 years, which is longer than I've been alive. So this is definitely an issue which isn't recent. Um, this archive footage of people being blamed for the conditions they're living in, similar things that I'm going into people's homes and describing. And that ultimately stops at the door of the government because ultimately it's them that can create the change but then you've also got these housing providers that are allowed to simply get away with ignoring I wanted to ask you about that because in theory there are rules that they're supposed Mm. to be following to stop this from happening clearly from your own experience and and others that's not happening Mm. what what is the experience of trying to get housing associations to act when conditions are so appalling I mean there are rules there 
And I always say it's great to have rules and regulation. Do I think there's enough? Absolutely not. And that's why I think the government at the moment are bringing in um, the social housing regulation bill that's been needed for a very, very long time. Um, But it's all good and well having things written down on pieces of paper and legislation. But if it's not being enforced, if the money isn't there and resources isn't there to support it, then it's simply not going to work. And and Quadro, you've obviously done a a huge amount of campaign. You're really sort of prolific campaigner on this. But you have also sat down with politicians. You have done some work with Mm -hmm. with Michael Gove. Do you think he gets... I mean, Sam used to advise Michael Gove. I mean, how how have you found your interaction with, with him on this? Yeah, I mean, it's been it has been interesting. I've met um, both Conservatives and Labour, um, Keir Starmer recently, and Lisa Nandy too. But I did, I think, I met Michael Gove about two years ago, and in fact, it was him that approached me, and he had said when I first met him that he actually came across my work on social media and seen the comp- the conditions people were living in, and that they, especially off the back of Grenfell, needed to do something to really sort this out once and for all. So it was quite interesting. I think in the beginning I had a perception of politicians and I thought I'm going to go into the room and just go absolute head to head um, in argument because they're going to try and justify or downplay the scale of the issue. And that's something that I'd faced from housing providers for a very long time. And it's something that irritated me, but it was quite the opposite and he I went in there with a list of notes of things that I think they can do that didn't really cost a lot and um, he listened uh, he did listen um, and it was quite positive I think and then obviously the regulations come out he's spoken to the likes of Grenfell United other campaigning groups too in order to inform that I just hope it doesn't end up being watered down or anything and that once it is there that it is enforced what about Labour? You say you've now met some of mm. the sort of leading Labour politicians on it. Mm. They've talked quite a bit about housing recently, but but less about social housing. Yes, um, and less uh, about the sort of issues that you're raising. Mm-hmm. Do you do you want to see them do more on it? Presumably, yes. But kind of what would you like to see Labour say about this? Oh, absolutely. And I've had I've had this same conversation because. Uh, I, I don't beat around the bush, especially mm-hmm. when meeting um, politicians. And when, when I met with Labour, I, I said there's a lot of people out there expecting you to take on this issue. I mean, supposedly the party for the people, you would think those living in, and it's millions of people living in social housing, a lot of them living in poor housing, that Labour would champion it. Um, is there anything, I think, that's majorly different to what we're being offered now? I'm not too sure, but I guess... I think what they need to do, of course, we want to be thinking about home ownership, home ownership, home ownership. But housing works as a cycle. You can't just have um, home ownership independent from the private sector, independent to social housing. It works as a cycle and it all affects each other. Now, if we're going to take a top down approach and focus on home ownership, but we've got a private sector where people are being bled dry of their income every month because the majority of it's having to go to their rent. How will they ever possibly save to even put a deposit down on a home? And not only that, if we see things going in the same direction in terms of rents in the private sector, it's just going to simply become completely unaffordable for people and what happens then they turn to a social housing sector which is already on its knees and we've got 1.4 million people in the queue in front of them trying to get into social housing so they need a bottom-up approach that's what I've been saying but we have to wait and see where things go with that I think. I wanted to bring in Rachel because you've been obviously very involved in developing labour housing policy. You've also been involved at a local government level in dealing with some of the issues that Quajo is talking mm. about. When you when you hear what he's saying, how, how, what's your sort of response to that? Oh, I completely. It really connects with me, and I've, I think Quajo's done in fantastic campaigning. And what he speaks so powerfully about is regulation rights and accountabilities because in when people start talking about housing and just listening into the introduction here we talk quite a bit about supply ideas so the planning and the finance but we tend not to talk quite so much about the regulation the power and the accountability and actually those issues cut across all different tenures so what Quajo's saying in terms of social tenants you might have slightly different rights and experiences depending on who your landlord is whether it's a council landlord or a housing association landlord but also if you're a leaseholder and a private renter your experience of power and accountability is very different so understanding how people can fix the problems that they face on a day-to-day level then the lack of accountability for that is a really important part of the debate as well. One of the things about the recent announcements that Labour have made is that they're they're quite top down, right? It's about house building targets again, sort of planning. Mm-hmm. 
Would you like to see them do more on sort of empowering local government to actually solve some of these problems? Because actually, I mean, you, you have had the experience. There's not an awful lot in a lot of these cases that local government can do. They don't have the powers, they don't have the money to, 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 to mm. do a lot of things. Would you like to see Labour take a more localist stance? Well, I mean, one of our big, big campaigning issues at the moment is our take back control bill and they, our approach to devolution. And one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in is around those accountability approaches for housing association tenants in their local area. So there's no particular obligation around accountability for housing associations to local authorities, for example. There used to be some in London, but those have fallen away. One of the things that has been tried is giving local councillors the responsibility around pursuing ombudsman complaints. For a while, it was only councillors that could pursue those on behalf of their residents. And really, you know, you hear some uh, Labour MPs feeling like they're actually running complaint services for housing associations. And I think we need to have a really systemic approach to accountability for poor services. Nick, I want to come to you and I want to, in a minute I want to talk to you about planning, which is what you were responsible for in government. But just listening to this conversation on social housing, it's sort of a bit of a weird issue for the Tories, isn't it? Because they see right for, to buy is still seen as this sort of totemic policy of that, you know, one of the great Thatcher policies. But it was also the thing that led to to this sort of big reduction in supply in social housing. How much of a how much did it come up when you were in government, sort of in the department? Um I mean I think the the thing about right to buy is is Yes, of course, it has uh, whittled away at the stock of social housing. But the main reason why the supply of social housing has has not increased in line with um, the needs of the population is the lack of investment in new builds, whether council housing or affordable housing. And that's been true over a a long period of time. I think it's fair to say, and Quajo was saying, that I think that Michael Gove has brought a relatively new and energetic focus on the conditions of social housing relative to his predecessors. And perhaps that's, you know, his trademark, as it were. He did a bit the same when he was justice minister, uh, focusing on on prison reform. Um, So he tends to try and find a neglected issue, which perhaps is more often associated with other parties, and try and grab it for himself. And I think he's been effective on that. The The problem, of course, which perhaps is what we're going to come on to, is that on the rest of the agenda, planning and, and the, the construction of uh, new built houses of whatever tenure, he's been completely upended by his party. Um, so while he's been admirably reforming and perhaps unconventional for a conservative on socialising on the larger supply agenda the conservative party has as it were neutered him and 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 they've kind of neutered the reforms you put through or you were responsible for can you tell us about how you sort of won the initial battle and why you think it's gone wrong now so i mean it's you know it's, it's all of these things are sort of deeply embedded in history and i and i always say we used to say when i was a Conservative. I should should clarify. Not only am I no longer a conservative MP, I'm no longer conservative. I was going to uh, ask you about uh, that later. Then, yeah. Well, I've, I think I, I think I've been fairly clear when <laughs> when uh, asked. But um, what I always used to say, to particularly to conservative annoy, audiences, to annoy them, uh, <laughs> was that the one bit of socialism that the Conservative Party had taken totally to its heart was the Planning Act. And then, you know, what was effectively the nationalisation of the right to develop land. And before the Town and Country Planning Act, uh, that was something that the property owner presumed was their right. But the Tories have sort of taken that to the heart because they love stopping other people from doing things uh, on, <laughs> on, on land. Uh, and that is the sort of where the root of the problem is for the Tory party. The last Labour government had taken an approach which was very much based on targets, top-down targets, regional housing strategies, regional housing numbers. And the Conservative Party in opposition before 2010 had campaigned vociferously against that. So when it came in, it had to find a way to get local authorities to plan to build houses, but without imposing on them the very thing that they'd spent the previous five years campaigning against, which was the regional housing targets. So they constructed, and I was obviously part of that process, a sort of system of sticks and carrots to try and persuade or arm twist local authorities to take responsibility for meeting housing need without necessarily imposing it 
on them. And it was never popular in the Tory party. I mean, I spent two years as a planning minister being beaten up by conservative audiences around the country. But nevertheless, it was sort of at some level accepted that there was a view among conservative MPs that from Macmillan on, meeting the housing needs of the population and particularly the home ownership aspirations of the population was a core conservative value and goal. So they would cheerfully sign up to the NIMBY campaigns in their own constituency against every particular development. But they were quite happy in a way that the government and and its ministers, i.e. Muggins here, were going to nevertheless force it through by this complicated structure of sticks and carrots. What's happened, and this is all part of the general evolution of the Tory party, which is obviously one of the reasons why I'm no longer a member of it, is that in a sense that understanding has disappeared from large parts of the party. Not all. You know, there are some honourable Conservative MPs of various parts of the country who are very much in favour of house building. But basically the NIMBY tendency has got a lock on it. Mm. And that is ultimately what happened, you know, with the national planning targets that uh, that Michael Gove had to, you know, jettison in f- the face of opposition from Theresa Villiers, North London MP, uh, and many others. And I, I think my conclusion, and, and I'll shut up now, but my conclusion is that fundamentally, the political composition of the Tory party, the people it represents, and the place it's crucially that it represents, means that it will never it will never be able to build enough homes to meet housing need. And actually, the only party that could, and I'm not saying it will, though I'm optimistic, that could is Labour. And that's partly because of where it represents. Because look at the Liberal Democrats. They're even worse than the Tories on this. I mean, they are NIMBY central. And now it appears the Greens are becoming NIMBY central too. So I actually think only the Labour Party has any chance of fixing this problem, but they've got to do it in a way that works, which is not the way that they tried to do it under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. So looking at the Labour policies that they've put forward, which essentially is uh, going to allow local authorities to to buy land at a fraction of of the cost, is that the way to to go forward and to build build on, on the green belt? Or do you think they need to be thinking even more radically, do they need to have a plan for, let's say, new towns as well? So I think it's some, it's very important elements in the solution. It's not perhaps the complete picture, but if you were going to pick two of the most important nettles to be grasped, what's called in, by the policy wonks land value capture. So getting hold of land to meet housing need at a reasonable value, not at the highly inflated values of the market. That is sort of a crucial step. Dealing with the green belt so that bits of land that are technically in the green belt but have no environmental quality and have huge development potential because they're close to transport links, you know, bus stops and train stations. That's another crucial step. So I have to say I'm incredibly encouraged because those are both they're not uncontroversial and not even and let's be clear they're not uncontroversial even among some Labour supporters and Labour voters and probably even Labour MPs so it's brave of them to do that I think it's probably if you look at the whole of domestic policy it's probably the single bravest move that Keir Starmer has made since he became leader and I think it's probably the most exciting bit of of their future manifesto so I think there are other elements that will need to come in but if they do those two things they could make a huge difference. Rachel, when you hear Nick talking about bravery, does that start making you a bit worried? Because you're you're running for uh, you're running for a seat, which I, being a constituency obsessive, I, I your seat it fascinates me because it's one of the very few three way marginals in the country where uh, Lib Dems, Labour, and Tories would all think they had a chance of winning it at the next election. And so your your hearings of Nick say it's brave. Does it sort of worry you that actually electorally this is going to be a bit potentially a bit toxic for for Labour? Well, there's no green belt in London and Westminster. <laughs> Indeed, as I was going to say, <laughs> as as you can as you can imagine. And for a long time, I've thought that there are places where good developments, good developments that will deliver genuinely affordable homes, are held up because something that isn't that green has been allocated green belt. So I think these are really positive moves to actually support the supply of new homes, these are policies that could really start to help the crisis elements around the really high rents that people are paying in London as well. 
and I don't think it's a three-way marginal, by the way, Sam, but perhaps you'll have me back. One <laughs> <laughs> straightforward All choice three parties to me. within um, 6,000 votes. But I'll happily talk you through the numbers another time. I know that's off topic. We'll get Ed Lucas I was going to say, I bet Ed Lucas has probably got a slightly different view on on that. Um, and, and Rachel, look, you know, very glowing reviews in the room here about uh, Keir Starmer's uh, policy on this. And I actually interviewed him recently at the British Chambers of Commerce conference on the, on the day that he'd made this announcement. And a lot of very warm reaction in the room because a lot of people do see housing as being really central to, to the pursuit of growth, which is, mm. is a huge aspiration mm. as well. But a big question in the room, and it kind of loops back to the economy episode we did, is, is Labour going to be able to afford to back this up. I mean, the ambition is there, the breaking through and mentioning the green belt is all there, but is the money going to be there, particularly when Rachel Reeves this week has really spelled it out to people that there isn't a lot of money around? Well, I mean, Rachel's absolutely right, and she's also the shadow chancellor, and in terms of being clear about the really difficult economic circumstances that we are going to be facing, I think one of the issues that we were going to be finding as well is how we can best support local authorities uh, with their approaches to requiring there to be genuinely affordable homes in a local level. But the reality around the economic barriers that we're going to face around the overall supply situation is really significant, hence why the approach on land value that we're looking at is definitely the right way to go. I, I think that's exactly right. If I could just jump in. I, you were talking earlier about it being a bit too centralised and top down. Actually, that's not my understanding in conversations I've had with, with some of Rachel's colleagues in the Labour Party. I think the idea to enable local areas, local authorities to set up development corporations, which is what created all of the new towns, you know, Milton Keynes and all these other places, that to give those development corporations the right to acquire land at a reasonable value, and then to be able to effectively borrow against the uplift in the value once they give it planning permission for development to fund local infrastructure. That could unleash a flow of capital that currently is totally denied. It's basically seized by the landowners. That suddenly puts local authorities in a completely different financial position. Now, I'm not saying it won't require grants, but I don't think that the scale of ambition has to be matched by an equivalent increase in grant so long as you enable them to get what is currently being completely, you know, effectively stolen. I mean, stolen is a bit unfair, perhaps, but nevertheless grabbed by the landowners and actually saying, no, this is a social need. It's a community facility. The infrastructure is going to be for the benefit of everyone, both economically and socially. So it's quite right that it's funded from the increase in the value of the land. Yeah. Quaid, you're hearing all of, of, of this. What are your thoughts? I mean, it's interesting. And there is that question, of course, of how is it going to be funded? And I had conversation with Lisa Nandy and the same with Michael Govan. I've seen money being completely mismanaged at the moment. I think it was between 2019 and 2022, 2023. One billion was handed over to private management companies in order to house those who were homeless, basically. And the conditions were absolutely shocking in a lot of them. Um, Not only that, you look at local councils and housing associations and the way in which they spend money with their contractors that they uh, choose to bring in to carry out work. But we see the quality of their work too when they're having to be sent in several times for basic jobs to be fixed. If local authorities and housing associations decided to bring that workforce in, at least they can manage the quality and standard of their work. I think though that housing will be one of the biggest priorities at the next general election, I think, for any party, for either party, because it's become such a problem. And I think any party wanting to create growth, productivity, is going to have to tackle the issue of housing. Because I've said time and time again, you cannot fix the NHS without fixing housing. You cannot fix education without fixing housing. If you've not got a safe and decent roof over your head, how can you possibly focus on every everything I, else? I, I so mean, agree with that on education. Like, I, I, yeah. It's my main policy area. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I spend so much time talking to head teachers who are trying to help kids yeah. in, you know, get Horrific. good grades, but they're, mm. you know, sleeping multiple kids to a room. They're mm-hmm. sleeping in the kind of conditions that you've talked about. You, you know, There's no way for them to do their homework. Mm. It, it, as you say, it affects every single policy area. And with education too, I think whoever's in charge of the next government, let's say, needs to focus on training and vocational routes for 
young people in regards to building and construction too because we simply don't have enough. I've spoken to people that work for housing associations and local authorities and they have to use these contractors because out of the pool that they've got, they're the only ones available. And we've seen what's happened in regards to Brexit and in terms of the limited labour force that we have now. I know the government's talking about relaxing rules when it comes to construction workers in terms of their visas, but we simply don't have enough and I don't think there's been enough emphasis in education on encouraging and incentivizing young people to go down those routes. And now what we're seeing is we've got a generation gap in regards to builders, construction workers, carpenters, plumbers, electricians, you name it, yet we're asking to build X amount of homes because we simply don't have enough. They're going to have to try and focus and meet that gap too, as well as all the other things. Such an important point, joining up the dots in the way that you've done. And of course, that is one of the things that you know Starmer has talked about. Look, Starmer has been very clear. We did a big um, show about Brexit. Labour is absolutely adamant they're not going to rejoin the EU, Mm. uh, and they want to get net immigration down. That's what their aspiration is. But they say they do want to sort of skill up and and, and train people. And there are these gaps. And this is a really, really good example of one of those. And Rachel, you wanted to come back in. Yeah, I just to Sam's point, just, you know, special educational needs, the huge growth in special educational needs within schools and their budgets. And there are some really, really painful, heartbreaking stories about the needs of children with autism who need more space or outside space. And that's one of the many reasons this getting this right matters. But there's a couple of supply side issues that we haven't that we could do another session on but about empty homes in London and own the ownership of those empty homes. So I'm doing a campaign at the moment about dirty money and property and how those if you have uh, the ownership of large homes or large places the impact that that has on the overall market but also short-term lets it's one of the things that I talk to with my colleagues in more coastal areas short-term lets and the way that they are currently regulated and the, the additional regulatory powers that local authorities need is something else that we can do I mean, this is why the big issue around devolution matters so much, so that local authorities in the right places have the powers to really bring some of those homes that are currently used as short-term lets back into more residential use, and it comes up time and again. So a question that I've had come up a lot on my uh, timeline and just just listening to, you know, various broadcast things over the last couple of days about housing, particularly linked into the Brexit conversation, but also the immigration conversation and the growth and population conversation. How much has immigration and the fact that our population has grown, how much pressure has that put on housing? Just from an honest point of view, Nick, I'll start with you. Um, unquestionably has put pressure um, on housing. Uh, but on the other hand, you might have observed that no government of any stripe has managed to find a way to make Britain's economy or society function without high levels of immigration. So rather than claiming that they're going to bring it down to some absurdly low level that hasn't been achieved for 20 years, maybe we should say to ourselves, this is actually the sort of level that we're going to have pretty much consistently year in, year out. So therefore, we should be planning not just housing, but school places and NHS capacity and whatever else it is for a situation in which there is a relatively high level of immigration. I mean, you know, who's going to do all of these jobs if we don't bring in people who are qualified to do them and want to do them because we don't have our own people to. And the next question that leads off the back of that is, how many houses do we actually honestly need to be building a year? Well, I mean, I mean I'd mean, i be very interested to hear the views of others. I think that it's one of those sort of... Bo- There's so many numbers of what I call bogus specificity in politics. Mm. What, is it 300,000? Is it 400,000? I don't know. What I know is it's somewhere near double what we currently do. And frankly, if you can get to even, you know, 75% more than we currently do, you'll be making a huge contribution to making this whole problem much easier for people, both personally and and politically. Rachel, do you have anything you want to add to that? And also one other just question, final question I want to put to you is, one of the things that has really annoyed people is this revolving door of housing and planning ministers. Do you think one thing that a Labour government, an incoming Labour government should do is commit to a single issue housing cabinet minister and offer some sort of assurance to people that, you know, this person is not just going to be there for like a year or 18 months. 
Um, I'll come I'll come on to that bit, but I just to in terms of the overall numbers, I think that's it's we we have to be talking about the type of homes that we're building as well as the overall numbers. You know, Nick's right; it has to be significantly more than we've been building previously. But the actual the tenure of those and the location of those and the design and this and the size also really matters in terms of. I think it's about one a year at the moment, housing ministers. It's the kind of thing that uh, housing nerds, I think I've probably been called that before, so I'm, I'm reasonable. You're to in say good company, track. don't worry. You're in a safe space. You're like in a, you're in a nerd safe space. <laughs> safe space. I think it, Yvette Cooper is the, is the longest standing. So, of course, it is something that absolutely needs a long term and a stable a stable approach. So just on the uh, question of the of the revolving doors of ministers, ultimately, that is a is a reflection of the level of priority attached by the leader, by the prime minister to that issue. Uh, so what you'll see is that, you know, Nick Gibb has been schools minister for about 200 years as the last time <laughs> I checked. Um, and that's because he's bloody good at the job. And everybody knows he's good at the job. And it's been consistently a top priority for Conservative prime ministers uh, to have somebody doing dealing with sort of school standards. If Keir Starmer really does think that this is one of the most important areas, both for economic reform and social provision for the next Labour government, then I think that he will you know, know that he needs to put somebody in there at the start and make sure it's somebody bloody good and then give them a long time to really get into to it and to, to get to implement what they legislate, implement the ideas that they trail. Uh, so that you can't sort of artificially say, oh, no, I pledge to have a housing minister that lasts four years. Ultimately, it's all about the leadership. Does the leadership really care about this? The truth about housing for the last eight, ten years is that no prime minister has really cared about it very much. There have been 21 since 2000, 21 oh, housing ministers since 2000, which gives, which goes to the point that Rachel and Nick are making. We could spend so much more time talking about this because there's, there's, it's such a big issue with so many different elements to it. But we are going to have to wrap up. So the question we ask all of our guests is, from what you've seen so far, are Labour ready for government? Are they passing the power test? So I will start with you, Quajo. Are Labour passing the power test? Well, o- on um, housing. On, on housing, on not housing. generally. I mean, there's still a long way to go and I'm not going to make a judgment and say, yes, they're doing everything absolutely because you've got Michael Gove there and he's put words to action. But they're on their way. They're on their way. (laughs) I guess I have a similar answer, which is that I really genuinely think they have the potential to be a great reforming administration on housing. Are they completely there? No. But would you expect them to be at this point? No. Uh, Are they as far as you could possibly hope? I think so. And are they a hell of a lot further than their competitors? Well, yes. Rachel, we know what you're (laughs) going to say. Green Belt. We've not done enough on leasehold and we've not. I'd love to do more on power and accountability if you are a private renter, if you do not own your own home and what Mm. that means. But absolutely, yes, passing the power test. Once we've worked out those supply side uh, mechanisms, which are so crucial, I think it's really important that these issues that Quajo speaks to so powerfully get a thorough, thorough discussion. Well, what a fantastic discussion. I feel if Keir Starmer is going to listen to this, and I'm sure he will do, um, you have Rachel, who could be one of your housing ministers. I see two Lords appointments here. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm with Keir Starmer have... on getting rid of the Lords. So. <laughs> we'll get rid of the Lords. Joe can go in <laughs> while he's waiting. But, you know. Cause chaos and then exactly. see what happens. Blow it up, Quajo. Yeah. I'll, I'll provide the gunpowder. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. Well, what a fascinating and illuminating conversation with three real, real experts who aren't just steeped from a knowledge point of view, but they really deeply care about the issues and they really join the dots up. Sam, what are your immediate takeaways? So I think my immediate takeaway is that I agreed with what Nick said, that this is sort of Starmer's bravest position that he's taken on domestic policy, which is great. But I think 
they've kind of got halfway there. The stuff they're saying on planning, if they do it, which of course is a big if, will make a huge difference to a lot of people's lives and deal with a problem that's been around, as all of our guests were saying, for a huge amount of time. But we haven't heard very much on the other side of the picture what Quajo was talking about, the conditions of social housing, the challenges of renting if you're low income, if you're living in a city with very expensive housing. And that is more challenging for them because it involves perhaps talking about spending money. It involves talking about an issue that is more conventionally associated with them so they don't get sort of as many brownie points from the media for, for taking it on. But it really does matter. You know, the conditions that he was living in, the conditions that so many other, of the other people he, that he works with are living in, like, we can't just look at one side of this. Yes, we do need to build more houses, but we need to think about people on low income as well as people, you know, hoping to get mortgages and get on the housing ladder themselves. Yeah, I mean, I very much... Uh agree with that. I mean, just listening to the the sweep of the conversation we had, I was really struck by the way Quajo joined the dots up between, for example, housing and health and education. And the truth is, if Labour does want to come in essentially with a fixed Britain narrative, which I think it does, at the absolute core of that is fixing housing. You cannot fix Britain if you don't fix the, the housing crisis that we've seen. Yeah, and I think you know your your point about it all being joined up is absolutely right. And we just haven't heard very much from Labour about poverty, which again I think is probably because at the moment they're trying to cover off areas they're not traditionally associated with, whereas most people would associate them with reducing poverty. But there are so many connected issues, as you say, education, healthcare, housing, the state of the welfare system, which are punishing a very large proportion of the population who don't have much of a political voice. You know, Quajo is incredibly unusual and in he has created for himself out of pretty much nothing this this sort of platform for campaigning given the background he came from but it, it is it is very unusual to have those voices in, in public debate still so I do worry that Labour are very fixated on issues that bother the middle class and I understand that electorally but there's so much they should they could be saying about poverty which we're not hearing just yet I, I've, I've spent my sort of life wanting a politician to sort of make, connect the dots. Poverty isn't just about compassion. It is about compassion, but it's not just about compassion. If you live in a country with high degrees of poverty, you will have a worse economy. And that affects everybody in the country. So just from a selfish point of view, we should want to deal with it. I mean, the other thought point I thought was really important that Rachel made is this sort of centrality of devolution and this bill Labour have talked about sort of taking back control, slightly cheeky title of their bill that they've talked you know, talked about. Are they really going to follow through on it? Government, you know, in opposition parties always talk about devolving power. Are they really going to do it this time? Well, as a member of Gordon Brown's commission, <laughs> I would say I hope they, they do. I mean, to be fair, a lot of thought has, you know, went into that piece of work. I mean, Gordon Brown's uh, report, which is very much the basis of, of this take back control idea. And I think what is going to be interesting for Labour and possibly will give them more of an imperative to do this than, than other governments, because as you say, everyone talks about devolution, is the fact that we have this new generation of of Labour mayors, particularly Andy Burnham. We've got Tracy Braben as well. And I think they're going to be agitating um, a lot to make sure that they do get more of this devolution, which I do think is is the right thing to, to do. Although the relationship between the mayors and Starmer's team is not... Is not- <laughs> wonderful at the moment, which does make me worry that, you know, that sort of centralising instinct that you get when you get into power is going to sort of, they're going to end up fighting all of these mayors rather than working with them. I I hope that's not true. Watch this space. Mm. So that's us come to the end of our time. Do remember to get in touch with all your comments and questions. We love hearing from you and they are so useful, your questions. They really help us sort of shape the, the conversation that we have with our guests. Um, please tweet us at The Power Test or uh, you can get in touch with us directly on Twitter, both Aisha and me, or you can email us um, at pod at thepowertest.co.uk. And you can become a founding member by subscribing to our Substack, which gets you access to ad-free episodes before anyone else. And join us next time when we will be taking on one of Labour's biggest triumphs, the NHS. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.